Hi, everybody. My name is Fabi Nagmi, and I'm so excited to be sharing with you our newest edition, Laugh, Lend, and Eat Biographies. We, we created biographies so that we could dive deeper and learn more from the guests that come on our show than we've ever had before. And I couldn't have been more excited to have my very first guest as my dear friend, Christine Beckwith, the president and founder of 2020 Vision Your Success Coaching. Christine and I have been on the same journey together for the past several years, and I've been inspired by her books, her speeches, her one-on-one -on -one conversations that I have with her. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as we learn about Christine and where she came from. And that one famous quote that she said to me, it doesn't matter where your story starts. So as I said, I got my dear friend Christine on here. Christine, how are you? Hi, I love the 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 image of the opening, man. That that gets my creative juices flowing. I love art, man. That yeah, was great. Yeah, we we wanted to do something different with biographies because you know with the podcast is fun, sure, and I can bring out my humor side, which I love. But I really wanted to find out more about people like you. you know what I mean, and and you've always been such an interesting person for me to get to know over the years. Uh, and knowing your story as well as I do, I just felt it was like, I know you, 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 <laughs> I know you don't shelter your stories from anybody. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nice way of putting it. <laughs> I am but, shared. Yeah. Yeah. But I do know that, you know, there's pieces that sometimes people don't, don't kind of don't get to hear and we get to do a little bit of deeper dive today. And then obviously we want to talk about the 2020 vision for success yeah. summit that's going to be happening next month in Tampa, Florida. Um, I love because... that you're doing this, Fabi. Um, you know, first of all, congratulations to you on all of your success. I mean, I have been a fan of yours, which you know um, forever, but watching and being part of your journey for many years um, has been incredibly uh, rewarding to see all that you've accomplished. And, and what I love about you, and I know you haven't asked me to say any of this, <laughs> but what I love about you, I'm going to say it anyways, you're going to have to listen to it, um, is that you are somebody that everybody should really pay attention to because you're pushing your own envelope. You're trying new things. This very show, I would say a couple of years ago when you said, Hey, I think I want to do a podcast. Well, that was the Fobby. What, like, what is it before podcasting Fobby? Mm -hmm. um, and it's almost hard for me to, to reckon with today because truly the brand of Fobby to me now is very much, of an influencer in our space. And I, I for lack of better word, because I'm not in love with that word, but mm -hmm. I, I, I do think that you have, you know, shared an incredible amount of um, very good content. Well, I mean, you're very kind. I mean, honestly, I, and I've always said this is like, I love being on the journey with you. I love being on the journey with certain people, right? But especially with you, because you. it was interesting when you look at the history of us, right? <laughs> May 2019, I think, or 18, I can't remember. I think it was 19, three years ago, was when we first met in Atlanta NAMBA conference. Mm -hmm. And so really this episode kind of talks, took look. if you look at it, it's like 36-month journey. But yet, I don't know about you, but it feels like it's been a lifetime with you. Because you know, before we were talking, the show started, I mean, like, we don't talk every day, we don't talk every week. But I know the friendship that we have doesn't require that. 
And so that's true. when you know you have a true deep friendship with somebody. Aww, I love that. And that is so true for me as well. Yeah. Group hug, everyone. Group hug. <laughs> so look, before we dive into Q&A, um, I know I asked you for some pictures. And so we put a little montage together for you and we want to share with you. Uh, and John Perry helped out a lot. So kudos to John. And, and you'll understand what, what I mean uh -huh. by that. But if we can just play that right now and uh -huh. then we'll start the show afterwards. Okay, hang tight. Let's do that. It doesn't matter how your story starts. Each page is but a day. You can choose to write it yourself the words you want to say. Should anyone else write your page, that's a choice you choose to make. Does each story really end, or is it yet another beginning? Do we not speak of time as if it is never-ending? Long before we become memories for others to visit and talk as if it were only yesterday, then we understand that we are not finished. No, we still can choose the words that they may say. So let us laugh, my friends. Let us live, my friends. Tonight we shall be the best there is. For tomorrow when we wake, years will have gone by as if it were only yesterday. No, it really doesn't matter how your story starts. Oh my God, I'm so emotional <laughs> right now. You have no clue. Oh. The picture of my mom and dad and my son. Oh my God. Anyways. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it's like my life flashing before my eyes. That's so beautiful. Wow, um, you guys dug deep. There was some. <laughs> there was some really old ones in there. There's some big hair in there. <laughs> oh my god! But thank you, thank you. Uh, we wanted to indulge uh, a little bit and life uh, I've had already. Yeah, you know? I mean, you know, obviously, you can't capture that in a minute, sixteen seconds, right? <laughs> you did a good. Job. Well, you know, I mean, my John, John's my voice friend. is perfect with the with that poem that we wrote, and and really, I mean, when, I, I know I'm, it's a shameless plug for my book, but in, in falling forward, I put that poem in there. And it was yes. inspired by you because our very first interview back in 2019, you said those famous words to me that it doesn't matter where your story starts. That's right. And that's a great that's place right. for us to start this interview, yeah. right? Because well, thank I mean, you. Wow, what an <laughs> honor that just was to see. You so, know? I mean, your story has some very humble beginnings that that little montage showed us. I mean, it's not like you came from this, you know, amazing, huge, you know, behemoth house of a yeah. <laughs> on the lake somewhere, right? I mean, right. you had some very humble beginnings, but still you found a way to do something that other people may not have been able to. I mean, look, other people have done it, but you found your own way in your own in your own path. And I think that's what I really understood from you, right? <laughs> I didn't realize Meredith, New Hampshire was such a uh, like a, a, a vacation spot for Bostonians during the summer yeah. until I started doing my research on this. Yeah. So that really put another layer of, okay, this is how Christine saw her world. Mm -hmm. you know yeah, I mean? it so, got really busy every year in September. I mean, in the, sorry, right at Memorial Day weekend, all the way through September, rather, it got crazy. Because I lived in a tourist area and you don't realize as a little kid because you're going to school in the off season. And then when summer would come, the whole area exploded and, and still true to, to do today, 80 something percent of the homes 
are of the 78 miles of shoreline of the Great Lakes of the White Mountains, which is the runoff of mm. the White Mountains. By the way, I didn't know how beautiful it was. I knew it was pretty. And you just, as a kid, you're just not looking around. You're in it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, like just in the last decade, have I said, wow, I grew up in this like heaven scent of a place, but it was very economically wealthy. My mom and dad were teenage parents, um, God bless them. And they provided us a safe, warm, well-fed, well-structured, clean, um, and I would say morally sound, you know, uh, shelter mm -hmm. to live in. And yet by societal standards, you know, we lived in a trail park and that's okay. Um, I think as a child, my self-awareness to my economical status was vivid. And I would say at some parts, cause you know what it's like having teenage kids, sure. they're very, materialistic. And I was very ungrateful for my situation at some point in my life, probably 12 or 13. I apologized to my mom and dad for so many years because I, I really was vocal about like, why did we have to be here? You know, right. because we were living amongst wealthy, wealthy people. We were going to school with wealthy people. All my friends had silver spoons and cars and, and, and their parents owned hotels and inns and, and, and restaurants and businesses and, Anyways, um, I didn't know that foundationally until I was older that all of those homes, I'm talking like most of those kids had broken homes in other ways. Sure. Um, and so. So I want to ask you one question is where did that drive like in Meredith, New Hampshire? All of this said the drive to answer you. I think 18 years is it like, let's start the clock and I'll be back in 18 years. <laughs> it's a long time to sit wanting things you can't afford. It is a long time to wear clothes that maybe feel less than fitting in. Maybe, you know, I didn't even bring my, you know, I don't want to shame my parents in any way, shape or form, but I did not bring my school field trip type permission slips home mm. because I was self-aware as a little girl that there wasn't extra. Well, you even talked about it in one of your book, a thing, Breaking the Cycle, where yeah. you got a camera for your Christmas yes. present. That's so funny and, you remember this. Right? You're and, the best. And, You're the best interviewer. I'm <laughs> telling you right now. And, Nobody and, has anything to do with it. And, and you said to your parents, like, why did I get this particular? I can't remember the details of the camera. And they actually saved up and Christmas. they went back and got you the camera that you wanted. Yes, they, they, I blew a Christmas morning over the fact that I needed a manual and automatic 35 millimeter camera for photography class. Yeah. And they bought me an automatic and it wasn't a manual. And of course the difference was hundreds of dollars. And I woke up and they were so excited to give me this gift. And I was such a jerk. Mm. And I made it known and I threw myself on my bed and it was the wrong camera. And oh my God, I hate myself thinking back. Um, but they literally went to work without saying anything to me and bought me the one that I needed. And I know that it took overtime and extra they didn't have. And they just, they didn't never wanted to disappoint me, you know? Yeah. Um, my mom and dad admire my drive today. They, my father 
has sat in audiences weeping. He saw me come back to Meredith when I wrote my first book and I had a, a little bit of a cross country book tour and it started in my hometown nice. and he cried through the whole damn thing. I mean, like literally in the back row with his, with his uh, cloth handkerchief. And when he's interviewed, which he has been on occasion, he'll, he'll say, she, I knew, you know, mm. that she, she was going to go places cause she was, I was just always a dreamer. And, and I want to tell you, I could have easily had that dampened that dreaming because a lot of people thought I was crazy when mm. I was little, you know, I had these lofty ideas of what I was going to become in the world. And as a little girl, I think people want to keep your feet on the ground and they want you to be logical. Um, and I saw so I had a lot of people saying, well, that's nice that mm -hmm. you want to do that. Yeah. It's nice that you want to become a, I knew I wanted to be an author in the fifth grade. I had a teacher saying, Christine, you're really well written and you're a good teacher you know, you're a good writer. I think we should try to get some of your, your stuff published. And I did. I had a couple of poems published in Cricket Magazine. I don't know if you remember Cricket. Cricket was one of the childhood grade school magazines in America. Um, it was a big deal. I would actually compete in the New York uh, Young Authors Competition. Um, and I said, one day I'm going to be uh, I didn't want to just be an author. I want to be a best-selling author. Right, right. Um, and so Again, I didn't even make that dream come true until I was 48 years old. But you still got it. You got I it. I got there. And let's, go, <laughs> let's go back to your parents real quick. But you, Because sure. you also said something else in Breaking the Cycle. You gave your parents, and if I remember right, it's Merle and Sandy. Yes. Merle yep. and Sandy Styles. Yeah, right? good. Yep. I know John always freaks out because I don't take any notes <laughs> before the meeting. He's like, you're doing, doing great. You know, like, you're like, wow. like, right, rather, you know what I mean? Yep. I get that from my dad, but <laughs> you give them credit for breaking the cycle. Yes. So two two part question, right? One, what cycle are you talking about, yeah. right? Because it didn't seem like the economic cycle was broken based on what what we know from your writings, right? And then why would you give them credit, not yourself credit? Yeah. So they did uh, break the cycle because if you look at, um, and I didn't go into this in the book, but truly, their families and upbringings were economically even more dire um and when i tell you the two of them coming together under one roof and and getting to a place where they could raise three children keep cars to this day they they ended up they they you know when we were young they had used cars and then i remember when they bought their first car because by the way i crashed their first car their first <laughs> brand new car um but when they got you know new cars um one would get a car and the other would wait until that one was paid off in four or five years. And the other would get a new car. And so the one that had the new car will hold the car for eight years. They still do that. They're, <laughs> they're, they're in their seventies now. And my mom will say, it's your dad's year to get a new car. Whatever road they took to salvation, they marched down hmm. and they were like paycheck to paycheck. And, and they had Christmas clubs. We had the most magnificent Christmases. Because she put $20 a week away, which was a lot, so that when Christmas came, you know, when October came and, and you could go to the local bank and they gave you back your savings for the year, she went and bought Christmas with it. The, th the idea to me that my mother and father had that type of self-control. So listen to me when I tell you, I am a product of the cycle that got broken by them. Um, and so they are, they are 1000% economically, they would end up buying, uh, uh, they would get out of there and they, they ended up after we all left home, they bought a beautiful Cape home. 
um, and, and still up there. And so, you know, that's, you know, that's why I have to give, you know, them the credit for that, because I, I, I think, you know, the stability that they were able to pull together from working hard together, there wasn't a lot of Who extra. Who you credit for, for your drive, your mom or your dad? Both of them are really hardworking. And this is really crazy, but I just did a podcast of my own on work ethic, uh, mm-hmm. ironically. And um, I unpack the fact that through growing up from birth to my graduation, my mom and dad worked in an asbestos mill, which was in the center of, of Meredith. And a lot of the townies, hundreds of them worked there. They manufactured asbestos. My mother was a master weaver. If you can imagine asbestos in the cotton form, she literally was starting cotton uh, from barrels that were being threaded onto spools. And she ran four master machines. Um, she wore a handkerchief over her, the front of her face, over the top. She came home covered in it. Um, my father worked in the shipping mill. They were there 20 years um, before OSHA came in and determined that asbestos mm. was cancer causing. And so let me tell you, they never were sick. They couldn't afford sick days. They worked sick. They worked with clothes, which I know is taboo in the COVID environment. Mm. But, the, you know, there wasn't COVID back then. They worked with with illness. And um, so I understood in the fifth grade, um, I went and got I the little kids in the neighborhood we all learned that this driving range, this golf range two miles away was looking for golf ball picker uppers. And um, five of us kids joined together and about 6 a.m. every morning in the summer months, we would ride our bicycles two miles and we would go do this Indian walk in this field for this driving range. And we picked up this golf balls for this very wealthy man that owned um, Fun Spot, which is a huge arcade up there. And um, he would pay us every Friday. And I want to tell you, my parents, I came home with that envelope and my parents would hold that cash for school clothes. And so we kind of, because they said, if you want more than what we're going to buy, you know, then you're going to need to contribute. And so like back then it was IZOD and shirts and Dickies and, and, and all that. And so we did, we, 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 we worked, you know, uh, our summers were working. Well, let's get back to you for a second here, because yeah. there's a really interesting part. By the way, you know, I've, I don't know how many times I've actually read Wise Eyes. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I just, it's it's really, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know Wise Eyes, I mean, this is really a great book. Too. I mean, you know, just my, I think I've read it four times, honestly. That's why I know so much about you, probably. <laughs> like a little stalker on words. I love that. There's this one section that I just, or two sections we're going to talk about in this particular book. This, this way, I'm just going to read it. This is during the election. I know I've talked to you before about this election that you were in, right? For the student council president, which I just love this story, right? But there's just a little excerpt right here, which is they were po- more popular. In fact, one girl was the prettiest in my class. One boy was the most handsome and popular. I recall thinking that morning as I rode the bus to school, why did I even enter the race? How could I have been so blind to their obvious advantages? I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? That's oh, like, yeah. no matter how old we are, Christine, we're still plagued by those feelings within ourselves. Oh yeah. Right. Like I definitely was mad at myself that morning, by the way, I thought I was going in to face defeat (laughs) they were announcing the ballots over the intercom. So we weren't pre-told who won or lost. And I just, they had us all stand in our classrooms. And I was the only one in my class that had tried to do this democratic process. The other kids were in other classrooms, but the principal had come over the microphone and stuff. And anyways, 
I just was mad that I had reached so far. And I was kind of feeding into the idea that, you know, my mom had said, well, you might be disappointed. You know, I don't want, I know you've worked hard. And, um, and I just listened, you know, back then, I, I think the reason I love, I, I came to terms with the fact that I needed to leave the mortgage industry directly as an executive leader. And I needed mm -hmm. to put my heart into helping other people as a, as a business. Um, I think about, where I would be if my principal, Phil McCormick, when I was in that sixth grade spot, wouldn't have sat me down and said, do this, do this, you've got this, you can do this. And then along the way, you know, I found Phil McCormick, you know, a dozen years later, and I began to form a foundation in the memory of one of my lost friends, uh, Charles Brown, to give scholarships back. And Phil would come and speak at one of my art shows where I raised money to do these scholarships, which I did for, for many, many years. Um, I went back and I paid it forward to other children that needed money to go to school and stuff. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that have showed up on my road and, 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 and fueled me from one spot or taught me this incredible lesson. I would tell you that I think I wrote in wise eyes that, that lesson may be singularly responsible in and of itself for me having an inner belief system. Whereas every time I want to pump the brakes and tell myself not to try something mm -hmm. that I actually go in the other direction and counter intuitively say, no, don't mm -hmm. listen to that voice. You can do this. I've often said, if I listen to that voice inside my head, if that was actually a different person, like a like a living, breathing person next to me, I wouldn't be friends with that person. Yeah, <laughs> I would, yeah. I would, I would so like to get the hell out of my life. You're wrong every time. Nine nine point nine percent of the time, you've been wrong for it's fifty four so years. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm stuck with that guy because he's inside of me, right? And yeah. I think that's what you're talking so to, right? Yeah. Uh, we can't get rid of that voices in our head, no matter how successful we are, no matter where we reach. There's always going to be that little bit of voice that we have to overcome. Yeah. Now, do yeah. you still deal with that voice today? Like today, May 20, 2022? Of course. Yeah, I, I literally had something happen today <laughs> that I, you know, stopped and felt some pain over um, and had to reason with the thinking I was feeling over a decision I had made with a consequence that was occurring. And I know that when I made the decision, I felt that it was the right decision, that I'd given it a lot of thought. I knew there were could possibly be some fallout, the fallout's occurring. Um, and I sat with it for a minute today. And I and and your knee-jerk reaction when when you know any type of loss, relationship loss or loss in business or anything like that can feel like loss, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you're willing to lose things to gain things, like it might be more peace, it might be, you know, I'm gonna push this employee out because they're hurting our firm. Um, they're not a culturally aligned person. I'm going to push this client out because they're not doing the work they should be, you know, whatever it is, it's still a loss. And because I'm an empathetic leader, I feel that pain and loss. And so the hard part for me is I came to terms a dozen years ago that I would not be a good leader if I only relied on my empath feelings to drive mm. my, my leadership. And so somewhere along the line, I realized that tough and good leadership, integral leadership, if you will, comes from also being able to call out bad work ethic, call out bad results, call out bad culture, call out bad performance, 
because by doing that, I would give strength to those that were doing well, because the greatest deterrent, I think, anywhere sometimes is allowing something to happen. If you have somebody that's working terribly hard on a team and someone else isn't, you're telling the person that's working hard that their work does not matter. And so I, I will just say something happened today where the voice in my head told me, oh, no, this is what I worried about. I worried mm. that this person might get off my bus or whatever. Got it. Um, and that and here's where it went. Within 30 minutes of thinking it through and not reacting to the pain of it, I said, why did I do this to begin with? Why did I push in this direction? Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, this is for the better. This is going to be good. And I immediately began to see the reaction of people that heard the news of this particular situation. Mm -hmm. And it was positive. People were like, good. Thank God. And then I said, okay, I did do the right thing. I did do the right thing. So, of course, it's, you know, all of us are going to go through that. I think if you can... Ground there's, yourself. Probably no, there's probably no right way to make a decision, is there? Yeah. I, mean, I don't think, I mean, that's what I pray. I mean, in my life, that's what I'm coming to realize. It's like you got to make a decision. You make it based on the best information you have. Yep. You got to jump over the voice in my head. I have yep. to jump over the voice in my head, right? Yep. And then I hope I land on my feet. You have to live with what you decide. Yeah. And I have I have found that winning lives on both sides of, of, of loss and gain. And what I mean by that is you can make a bad decision turn out right. But what you have to do is you have to be willing to own whichever direction you're going. So many times we sit, I see people die on the fence every day of indecision. They're not growing and they're not shrinking. They're just existing. That's the word. Man, that's the worst. It it really is because at least if you're dying, you're doing some form of activity. If if you throw yourself in some direction and you realize you went in the wrong direction, well, amen, you went in a direction mm-hmm. and yeah. that is good. And now you can turn your butt around and come over here to the right direction and correct. But the one great thing about that is you were willing to take a risk, which tells me you have the ability to be successful because here's where success doesn't grow is in the non-action people mm. that are stuck or can't start. There's so many non-starters. There's so many un- indecisive people in the world. Um, it's a real plague. When you when you resigned from your last mortgage lending, I mean, you were you were the national lender uh, sales manager, whatever that title is. I'm yep. sorry, right? Yep, VP but, of sales, yep. Yeah. And so there had to be indecision about your decision. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, right? my God. And yes, even after, because, I, mean, I, I imagine after you left, there had to be some indecision, right? Dude, if you could have had a camera, you want to talk about a moment in time. Uh, I, you know, I'll bring you, if you give me two minutes, I'll, I, I'll, yeah. I'll say really fast. Um, in 2006, between H&R Block Mortgage getting shut down during the mortgage implosion and then taking the job with Village Home Mortgage with Joe Penabianco in the beginning of Annie Mac um, and going on that 12-year journey with them, I had a summer off. I wrote Wise Eyes and and I don't mind sharing. I knew that I wanted to build a consulting firm. Fast forward to 2016, 17. I was way past the time I thought I was giving to Annie Mac. I had said, I'll give you five years. I'll help you get this thing growing. And then I'm going to go. And I didn't go. I stayed. And I stayed and I stayed and I stayed. And as the years wore on, like with any job, um, it changes. Your environment changes. The people you're sitting at the table changes. You know, th- things can become 
um, you know, a grind. Um, mm -hmm. This business can become a grind. And I wasn't as inspired as I had been or I knew I could be. And I just kept asking myself, did I have more? And I have to tell you, Joe Penabianco played such an incredible role in my processing of this decision and then leaving. And he was the person that stood on the stage at the annual summit and, and told a very shocked audience that I was going on. And his words, which I had no idea what he was going to say, mm -hmm. um, were poignant. And I've had a memory pop up on my phone recently with the video that they made of my exit. And just, just recently, um, I guess, you know, a few months ago, I saw it and, um, his words were really, he said, sometimes, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, sometimes people grow, uh, beyond a place that they're standing and that the only place they can go is over the side of the cliff and they spread their wings and they absolutely soar. Wow. And that's what he said on my exit. He said, and this person that I'm about to announce is leaving our firm is ready to take that leap. And, mm -hmm. and he said that, and, and that was incredibly powerful for me. That was, um, it was beautiful way to put what was happening to me or what I was feeling or what I wanted to do. And legitimately I ended up um, being able to take that leap and um, incredibly just I, the night that I, that the lights went out on my email for Annie Mac, I want to tell you, I was sitting with a, a roll of toilet paper <laughs> in the living room on a couch and, and, for 12 years, when someone would get terminated or resign from Animac, it would say, um, you know, the subject line would come over and it would have the person's name and it would literally, you know, be making the statement that they're, you know, they went dark, basically. Mm -hmm. And I was getting texts from all the executives and leaders and branch managers that received that message. And it said, Christine Beckwith, you know, you know, and it said the final words. And with like crying emojis, because for them to see like the curtain call for me. And that night I wept because I, it was scary. And it was, even though I was going in this direction, I was leaving at the top of my field. Um, I felt like I did the Seinfeld thing. Like I left people wanting more. Mm. I left in good, good, uh, you know, in, in a good uh, relationship. Um, they became my first client. They honored me with buying my first contract. They're still a client today. Um, so they didn't put their foot on my ass and shove me out the door, which was amazing. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that is in our industry, right? I mean, that's kind of the way get people get treated. I mean, I, I know plenty of friends who work with large lenders, and as soon as they leave, they they get the boot. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there is oh no yeah, get the hell out! Don't yeah. let the door hit you on the way out. Yeah. Well, what's interesting when I we were doing research for this show, I came across, I think it was like I think wherever you mentioned, like 2013, or you did a you did some kind of seminar. And it was called Vision for Success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my you website beforehand. <laughs> I in did. other words, right? Oh six. I bought the domain for um, this website that is live today for 2020 Vision, and it was VisionYourSuccess.net. And I paid for that domain for. 12 years before it came to life. I was like not letting it go because I had this epiphany sitting on the beach of Lake Winnipesaukee. I'd rented a house for the summer. Jagger was a year old. Um, I was between jobs and I was writing. I didn't know I was writing Wise Eyes that summer. I was writing that summer. I was afraid I wouldn't remember everything that had made H&R Block hugely successful. 
So is Wise Eyes like post HR H and R blog? It is. It's right? it's, it's yeah, immediately right. following. Yeah. Right. So you're, but you're, reflective on a lot of the things I did there that were successful. Yeah. Something you wrote in Wise Eyes also. You talked about the disadvantages of of being a female sometimes in the executive arena. Chapter fourteen. Yep. Right. So I mean, mm -hmm. there was like this like a double standard almost. Males would get treated one way. Females get is that still, in your opinion, still prevalent or is it becoming yeah. more balanced? I mean, I'm going to be really honest with you and tell you, I've never had a big women's lib voice. And I wrote chapter 14 because I, I finished Wise Eyes and handed it in. And my my editor said, you did not write about the one thing people are going to want to know. And that is what it was it like to work in a male dominated field. And I thought I am writing about that. At the time <laughs> the book was coming out, uh, you know, I was surrounded by Annie Mac executives. I was running a company that had 98.5% males below me, beside me, above me. No, there were no females beside me or above me um, in sales anyways. And, um, you know, I said, I'm not doing that. And I got pushed to like, you know, this is what was said to me in a hundred years when you were gone and Jagger's grandson picks up a book to learn about his great grandmother. What is the story you want to tell about your mm. career? And so I said, Oh my God, great. And she said, well, why don't you write it as if you're writing it in a journal? And I did. And then we looked at it and I will tell you, I submitted this chapter to the executive team at Animac and said, this is a controversial chapter. You probably want to read it. If anybody feels there needs to be something changed, please tell me. I'm not saying I will change it. I'm saying I will consider. And I want to tell you out of that edit, one word was changed. Wow. One. That is all they asked me to change was one word. It was kind of a harsh adjective when I was describing something, not about Animac either, but mm -hmm. just in general. In, in, in Here's the deal. I had everything that every woman's ever had happen, happen to them. Um, I never really, you know, ever felt the need to point to the minority that I was. I never felt like I was disadvantaged um, in getting jobs. I credit men for my promotions. It's mm -hmm. men that promoted me. However, um, I would be lying if I didn't tell you I have experienced everything from, you know, sitting at a boardroom where I have an idea and not a lot is said about it. And then mm -hmm. three seats later, some dude says something in a different way. And they're like, oh, yeah, great idea. I have had that happen to me. And you can't, it's so such a subtle um, discrimination thing that I've, it's irritating, but at the same time, I've said to myself, learn to say it in a different way. I, I kind of have a tough voice. Like I can be very direct. I, I'm sure you feel that, yeah, you know I mean, that about me.